Today, we discuss one of the key ways that the biggest capitalist enterprises receive huge government assistance, quantitative easing. This policy, carried out by central banks, has been the subject of major debate in recent weeks. What is quantitative easing, and is it going away anytime soon? Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it, capitalism is in crisis, and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolff join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in this week for Brian Becker. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out that and all of his work at rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, uh, let's just start with the basics. What is quantitative easing? I mean, it sounds like a very technical, complicated word. Um, break it down for us, if you would. Well, let me pick up with what you just said, because it's actually an important part of this story. Uh, economists have been likened, and for good reason, uh, to lawyers. Uh, and the, the similarity goes something like this. Lawyers take simple issues, like, for example, I promised uh, to buy a pound of potatoes from you, and you promised uh, to accept my money in exchange, and then one or the other of us didn't live up to the bargain, and uh, we sue to recover what we should have been given, whichever one is aggrieved. Uh, lawyers take this simple question and write the law about it. The law is incomprehensible, takes six volumes to work itself out, and you need an, a specialized education to learn the lingo. If you go to law school and you get your law degree and you learn the lingo and you learn how to skim through those books, you end up knowing what is going on, which turns out to be the simple issue from the beginning. So why go through it? Here's the answer. Because the people who get into conflict with one another have to pay the lawyer a fancy fee in order to translate the gobbledygook the lawyers wrote into the simple ideas that they always began with. We economists do something like that. Maybe the drive here was to get paid as well as lawyers can get paid. In any case, quantitative easing is a wonderful example. It used to be called printing money. It used to be called pumping the economy full of money. 
because that's really what it is. And it, but no need to change the name. It requires a whole new network of people to ask and answer the question, what is it, uh, which wouldn't have been necessary if you had started by teaching people how the monetary system of a modern capitalist economy works. So let me very briefly tell you, because it isn't fundamentally very complicated. In order for a modern economy to work, as everyone listening to this program knows, you need money. Money is the way, if you pardon me, the way the world goes around. Money is what we earn in our uh, paycheck. Money is what we pay uh, to live our expenses, to pay for our food, clothing, and shelter. And you may never have thought about it, but you ought to have wondered at some point, where does the money come from? Literally, who's responsible for printing up those pieces of paper we hope are in our wallets and those coins jingling in our pockets? Now, early in capitalism, when people still believed, as some still do, that whatever is private is better than whatever is public, a kind of religious dogma uh, that people should outgrow, but often sadly don't. Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, you will understand that when we left it to private, profit-driven enterprises, banks in particular, to print money, which they did early in capitalism, including early in U.S. capitalism, the end result was a chaos of multiple monies. Nobody knew quite whether to trust money that had the name of a bank in a neighboring state on it. You never knew whether the bank that had printed the money would be good for it if you wanted to cash it in for something else, say something more uh, tangible like gold. So country after country, including the United States, ended up taking the creation of money, without which our economy doesn't work, away from the private sector and gave it to the government as a monopoly. And that has been the case here in the United States for well over a century now. No one in their right mind, I'm going to be strong here, can imagine a modern capitalist economy in which there isn't a central governmental authority in charge of the money. The next time you hear some libertarian tell you about how who needs the government, the government is just a big burden, gently smile, tap them on the shoulder, and say to them, yeah, it's a detail, you know, like it controls the money supply, uh, without which nothing else happens. So yes, the Federal Reserve is the name of the governmental agency in this country that is in charge of printing money, creating money. They decide, the Federal Reserve, the Board of Governors, it's called. The United States is carved up into 12 regions. Each one of them has a Federal Reserve Bank, a branch of the central bank of this country. The head of each of the 12 regional banks sits on a board in Washington, and they make the decision how much money to print. That's right, literally 
how many of those $50 bills you wish were in your pocket uh, to produce. And so that's their job. Their second job, which follows from the first one, is to inject, to put that money into the economy to circulate. So we all have money with which to make purchases. So we all have money with which to pay people who do work for us and so on. So the interesting question is, how do they do that? Well, they could do it in any one of a thousand ways, but they do do it in a particular way. And that particular way serves the reproduction of our capitalist system. And in particular, the richest, biggest corporations within it. Because the major way that the Federal Reserve injects money, new money, into the economy, which they're doing all the time, is, and you're going to love this, by lending it mostly to huge banks, big insurance companies, and more recently, as our economy has become more and more troubled and more and more dependent on the government, the Federal Reserve is now lending directly to non-financial corporations, big capitalist enterprises, issue bonds, IOUs, and they give them to the Federal Reserve, which prints up fresh new money to give to those companies as a loan. That's how it's done. And the other part of quantitative easing, besides printing and injecting money into the economy, is a kind of close cousin to the first one. It's called the interest rate because the Federal Reserve will also lend anybody fresh new money. But of course, anybody doesn't mean you and me, which is why people listening to this program have never had a transaction with the Federal Reserve Bank because they don't lend to the likes of you and me. Who do they lend to? Well, they lend to banks, insurance companies, big corporations, and sometimes very wealthy individuals. And they control the lending, how much money is borrowed by these people and these businesses from the Federal Reserve, which in turn shapes how much money is in the economy. They control that by raising and lowering interest rates. You lower interest rates when you want to make it cheap for banks, insurance companies, and rich corporations to borrow new money from you. And if you think you should slow down the economy, you do the opposite. You raise interest rates because that dissuades big corporations from borrowing as much as they might have if the interest rate were low. Summary. The way the Federal Reserve manipulates the monetary system of this country which is its job, is to control the quantity of money in circulation and the interest rate. Quantitative easing means that they are increasing the amount of money they're pumping into the economy, and one of the ways they do that is by lowering the interest rate to make it cheaper for those who borrow from the Federal Reserve to do so. Is this the only way 
you could increase or decrease the quantity of money? Of course not. Here are a couple others, just so you understand how peculiar our system is. You could take fresh new money just coming off the printing press, take it up in a helicopter, and travel from one city to another or from one rural area to another and drop it out of the helicopter onto the happy people below, each of which will be equipped with a bushel to collect as many of those bills floating down as possible. Would that increase the money in circulation? You bet. Would that stimulate the economy in the way that quantitative easing intends to do? Yep, you bet. And if you wanted to pull money out of the economy, here's what you could do. You could put taxes on banks, insurance companies, big corporations, and the rich. And when they pay the taxes, you destroy that money that they've paid their taxes with because that will diminish the amount of money in circulation. But of course, the big corporations who are in the business of making profit do not want you to tax them. Just look at what they're doing to the modest effort to tax them that Biden Democrats are engaged in right now. They don't want to be taxed, and they don't want helicopters to deliver the new money uh, to the mass of the working class. They want it to be available to them in low-interest loans, just the way the Federal Reserve has been doing for the last 20 years on a scale we have never seen before. Professor Wolf, thank you for, for laying all of that out. So clearly, quantitative easing is an arrangement that benefits the capitalists. It benefits big businesses, corporations, banks. Um, there is a debate, however, in elite policy circles over it. Uh, let me let me read to you a few lines from an opinion piece uh, in the Washington Post, written by Larry Summers, who's you know one of the most prominent capitalist economists. He was the Secretary of the Treasury under Bill Clinton. He was the head of Obama's uh, National Economic Council, and the opinion piece is titled "It's Time for the Fed to Rethink Quantitative Easing." So in this, Summers argues, uh, viewed from the perspective of current economic conditions, it cannot be justified, it being quantitative easing, cannot be justified and presents its own danger. As with any highly potent medicine, managing its withdrawal is delicate, but the beginning of wisdom is seeing that the quantitative easing prescription makes little sense today. So why, I mean, why would Summers be arguing this? I mean, he's somebody who who clearly has the best interests of the capitalists at heart. Uh, and, and what role does fears about inflation play in that? The only thing remarkable about uh, what Summers is saying there is that it is somebody usually associated with the liberal side of American politics. Uh, what would anywhere else in the world be called the center-left? Um, it's a little bit unusual to have someone on that side say that. There's absolutely nothing unusual, original, uh, or even all that interesting in what he, in the substance of what he says. It is always a problem. Capitalism, like every other system, is full of contradictions. It's always the case that whatever the problem capitalism presents, when you come up with and choose a solution 
you can be sure that that solution, however effective it is or isn't, will in turn create new problems. And all that Mr. Summers wants to stress, as his more center-right colleagues have been saying long before he joined, was, you know, there's a problem with this easing. There's a problem with flooding the economy with money. And let's be clear, Obama flooded the economy with money. Trump flooded the economy with money. Biden is flooding the economy. On this question, being a Republican or a Democrat is mostly about the words coming out of your mouth, not about the deeds you're actually engaged in doing. The reason Republicans and Democrats filled our economy with new money, creating more new money through this quantitative easing than we have ever seen any U.S. government do in peacetime. The reason is our economy is in very deep doo-doo. There is no way out of this. We are an economy that has crashed three times in this new century. The dot-com crash in 2000 that I speak of, the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008, and now the COVID-19 crisis. We give these crises names of, of a sort that distracts you from the fact that capitalism is a system that has been plunging into regular cycles of crisis from its beginning three centuries ago, but we can't speak ill of capitalism because Americans have a hard time uh, even thinking like that. But the reality is that if you plunge the economy uh, into a crisis the way capitalism does, and they are very bad, as these have been, and there are very many, as these have been, and they're happening together with a lot of changing world conditions, of which COVID-19 is the worst so far, but climate change right behind it, and the rise of America's first real competitor in a century, namely the People's Republic of China, these things make the economy desperate. And in the desperate circumstances, they have been flooding it with money. Uh, and, and that's a bipartisan uh, activity. But Mr. I block his name out. Isn't it wonderful? The, our former president. <laughs> Summers, Larry Summers. Uh, yes, I mean, one of the most vile capitalist economists. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he really is a, a piece of work. But uh, put it aside for a minute. Um, the reason he's worried is, is a very old argument. With all of this money in the economy, a risk arises. What's the risk? That that money piling up in the accounts of banks, insurance companies, big corporations, and wealthy individuals may, may, no necessity, but it may at some point begin to go out and want to buy a lot of stuff. Why? The people who have this new money are mostly the wealthiest in our society. They don't need to go out and buy another car. They have 10 or another mansion. They have 10 of those too. I mean, you can see what, what enjoyments they have by watching uh, them compete as to who can sit in a rocket ship for a half an hour uh, at paying billions to get it done. 
So the reason they are going to start spending that money to buy things is if they become afraid that the value of the money they've accumulated might go down, that it becomes less valuable. At that point, they say, oh, my goodness, I don't want to have all of these dollars. I want to buy some land or I want to buy some real estate or I want to buy gold or I want to buy rare paintings. But I want to have stuff that will go up in price because I'm afraid that an inflation is coming. The minute that happens, we have what economists find fairly often. It's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. The very fact that people, whether they be banks, insurance companies, wealthy individuals, or corporate executives, the minute they think that inflation is coming, prices are rising, they realize you better buy something that you're thinking of quickly, because if you think too much longer, it'll cost you more next week, next month, next year than if you buy it now. So the fear of inflation makes people jump in to buy, which of course makes whatever inflation there might have been worse than it otherwise would have, thereby stimulating other people to come to the same conclusion, and then the inflation can really take off. And now why is that a worry? Because inflations destabilize capitalist economies. An inflation, a general rise in prices, can happen if you've pumped the economy full of money. By the way, we've been pumping the economy full of money up until this last year for, for two decades, and we've had no inflation. So there's no necessity that pumping the economy full of money makes an inflation. Other conditions have to be present together with more money for the inflation to happen. But once it gets going, it becomes a self-reinforcing process, which is why history is full of examples of what came to be called runaway inflations or hyperinflations. I'll give you one of the most famous examples. Between 1922 and 1924, that's a, a period of 18 to 24 months, in Germany, the value of the German mark collapsed. Why? Because prices in Germany at that time doubled every couple of hours. In the stores, they had to reprice the soap or the butter or the milk literally several times a day because otherwise they couldn't do business, they couldn't survive. Prices were going crazy. This has happened in many other countries at all different points in history. And it destabilized because if you're in a position to raise the money you get as fast as the prices go up, well, then you can survive. But there are always in capitalist societies all kinds of people who cannot raise the income they get as fast as prices go up. Let me give you the most important example right now. Wages, the average wage in the United States from July of 2020 to July of 2021 went up about 4%. The prices in this country for consumer goods that those wage earners spent their money on 
went up by 5.4%. In other words, the inflation was eating into, diminishing, reducing the standard of living of the American working class. Now, as we know from the Trump phenomena and from much other evidence, the American working class is in a very bitter, angry, upset, disappointed mood. The last thing on earth this country needs is to attack the standard of living of a working class already agitated by the jobs that aren't there, by the crappy wages, by the reduced benefits. So he is actually sending an alarm out, even though he's a liberal, because he's afraid that the capitalist system, which in the end he has always endorsed, supported, celebrated in his public work, in his work as a professor of economics, which is how I have interacted with him. Uh, He loves capitalism. And he's worried that this easing, which was necessary, he would agree with that because he did it too, is now at a point where, uh uh-oh, you better rein in all of that money. Otherwise, given the other pressures on this country, you are in the situation where you could have an inflation that would even more destabilize American society than it already is. And, you know, one one more question for you, Professor Wolf, because all of what you're saying brings up, I think, very important and interesting points or pokes very important holes in some of the dominant ideological, political, rhetorical justifications for the capitalist system, for, for the inequality that defines the present society. And and one of the key myths that we're told, or one of the key principles that's promoted by elite politicians, by uh, right-wing economists, by the media, in, in schools and other powerful institutions, is that it's shameful to receive assistance from the government. It's, it's shameful to receive uh, public assistance and that people need to pick themselves up by the bootstraps, work hard, and, and that's the only proper way to earn a living. So I, uh, for instance, in 1996, Bill Clinton signed uh, a law that essentially gutted the welfare system. In his words, ended welfare as we know it. Uh, Here's a passage from the speech he gave when he signed that infamous bill gutting welfare in 1996. The current welfare system undermines the basic values of work, responsibility, and family, trapping generation after generation in dependency and hurting the very people it was designed to help. Today, we have a historic opportunity to make welfare what it was meant to be, a second chance, not a way of life. But, but when you consider all the things that you're saying, when you, when you consider all of this massive, I mean, unbelievably massive programs that exist to assist the biggest banks and corporations run by the Federal Reserve and other government agencies, I mean, that's a way of life for these powerful economic interests. Uh, Talk about that, if you would, just the the basic hypocrisy there. Sure. And let me do that by pointing to a statistic that we all became aware of um, at the end of last week. The the Treasury Department here in the United States issued a report, and it had to do with these debates going on about changing some of the tax rules, uh, funding uh, the Biden infrastructure program, and so on. And here was the statistic. They measured 
the difference between what the law in the United States, the existing law today, requires of corporations to pay in, in the form of taxes that they owe, that they are legally obliged to pay, versus the amount that has actually been collected from them. What is the gap between what they owe and what they pay? And they came up with the number $163 billion annually is being lost. Now, that's a gift. That's a gift of the government of an immense amount of money, far larger than is given to welfare recipients, either individually or collectively. It's, it's absurd. And let me make it clear to you, it's only the tip of the iceberg, because if the law were not full of loopholes, then what they would owe would be much, much greater than it is today. It's even with all the loopholes, all the deductions, all the exemptions that corporate lobbyists have written into the law, even with all of that, the corporations are, uh, and the rich are $163 billion short of meeting their legal obligations. If you got rid of those loopholes, as we should have done decades ago, the amount would be much, much larger. We wouldn't have to be fighting in Congress over getting the money to pay for the things we need because we would already have it. You're right to remind us of this effort to shame the poor for getting some assistance. The greater shame is the rich who get much more and, like Mr. Trump used to remind us, are proud of how they work the system. He got up and said, look, it's smart I am. I maneuvered around and used these deductions. So we're supposed to be angry at the welfare mom who uses her smarts to get a little bit more food for the table. But we're supposed to admire the billionaire who gets out of paying anything like a reasonable share of his uh, taxes. So, yeah, it is, it's an unspeakable uh, way of running a society. And my only sadness as an American is that it seems to work for so many people who are complicit, who agree, who believe somehow that it's appropriate to be angry at the poor because of what they try to dig themselves out of their hole and be respectful of those who have stolen way more than those poor people could ever dream of. It's an extraordinary symbol or sign of the power of ideology to keep people going in a system that is screwing them day in and day out.
We're going to have to leave it right there. That was the voice of Professor Richard Wolff. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Check out his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.